Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Hello, smart people of the world. Happy holidays to you all. You're listening to the Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Stemp, and alongside me as usual, I have John Rojas, or The Roach. We're so excited for the show today. I think it's my favorite interview so far. I can't wait to share it with everybody. But first, we want to say thank you so much for tuning in. We hope everyone has subscribed to the podcast by now. If you haven't, make it a New Year's resolution. I don't know. Maybe you'll follow this one. But thanks to you guys, the podcast has really taken off. Uh, It's so much fun for us. We have a lot of great guests lined up. They're only getting better. And we have some really fun ideas for the future. We're going to do listener segments. We're going to have you guys suggest what we talk about, who we interview. It's, it's going to be awesome. Um, we also wanted to mention that with the growth of the podcast, we're trying to make it a better experience for everyone. We're spending more time on sound levels, trying to become a little more professional if possible. Um, I just bought a much nicer microphone. I upgraded our software. So if you appreciate our podcast and our hard work, we ask that you visit our website at smartpeoplepodcast.com and leave us a donation. On the main page, if you scroll to the bottom, there's a donate button. It's through PayPal. It accepts all your credit cards. So take out the one you haven't maxed out over the holidays and just drop us a few bucks. It'll help keep us going and hopefully it'll make the podcast even better for you. All right. Now that I got that done, let's get on to the interview. Uh, we have Dr. Barry Bernfeld with us this week. He's the associate director at the Primal Institute located in Los Angeles, California. The Primal Institute's an outpatient clinic based off of primal therapy. And you've probably heard of primal therapy in some form. It's also, people think of attachment theory. You might have read the book Primal Scream. And it's an idea that many of your problems, or as the smart people of the world will say, neurosis, that occur later in life, are they, they're caused during your childhood. And this is because your needs as a child aren't met. Every individual child might have different needs. You need to be held longer. Somebody needs to, you know, rock you to sleep. Everybody had their little quirks. And if those aren't met, your parents don't recognize it, it can cause problems later in life. At least that's what the theory behind it is. I'm not saying that everyone needs to sus- subscribe to this idea, But it's interesting listening to somebody like Dr. Bernfeld. He has really interesting stories. It kind of opens your mind to thinking about things a new way, maybe how other people are acting or how you act and think about how it relates to your childhood. You'll just hear some really interesting stuff, and I'm hoping it'll it'll expand your mind a little bit. After all, if we can do that on Smart People Podcast, then we did our job. So Dr. Bernfeld has over 20 years experience at the Primal Institute and and doing this kind of therapy. He sees patients from all over the world. They they literally seek him out and fly to California. He has more clients abroad than in the US actually. And you know, he's gets higher reviews everywhere. So we're really blessed to have him on the show. I will talk no more. 
Here I give you Dr. Barry Bernfeld. If you could just help us understand a little bit about what primal therapy is, what you guys do at the Primal Institute. I guess maybe the best place to start. In 1969 or 1970, uh, Dr. Arthur Janov published a book called The Primal Screen. So the primal screen, you know, that phrase is now part of sort of American lexicon. But the, but the original title of the book is really a metaphor. It's, it simply refers to the sounds that people make when they're in pain. Someone who's crying or sobbing is making all sorts of sounds, or someone who's really furious and, and in a rage is also making certain type of vocal emotions. So that's what it's about. It's not about voluntarily screaming or any such. Really what we do is we try and help people regain the capacity to feel certain emotions that they have repressed for most of their lives. Uh, now, for men, a lot of that is sadness and loss. So essentially what we do is we help people to get in touch with long-forgotten emotions that have to do with loss and sadness. Now, that said, this may have to do with your parents getting divorced when you're a kid. It may have to do with your latest girlfriend leaving you. You know, it, it really runs the gamut. That's, a, that's a, in a nutshell, what we do. We, we talk with people about all of the issues in their life, their career issues, their marriage woes, their financial concerns. And if you give people enough freedom and enough, uh, enough safety, they will talk about those things, but eventually they will wind down to where they're talking about their history in a, in a very meaningful way. And, and for most of us, that history has to do with, with things that happened in our families when we were growing up. So that's, I don't know, does that make sense to you? It does, yeah. And that was actually one of the things that I was wondering about in doing my own research. It seemed a lot of the primal therapy is targeted towards childhood, maybe early adulthood. Is that where it usually ends up, or is that where you're trying to get to with your patients? Well, well both. You know, primal theory came about... Usually a scientist comes up with a theory and then tries to fit reality into the theory. Primal, primal theory came about the opposite way, which is experience, clinical experience with our patients time after time after time after time pointed to certain realities. So, yes, it, in a sense we're targeting you know, a person's early history, but that's not sort of a, a random just target. We target early history because that's invariably where people need to go to resolve the issues in their life. You know, what makes a person keep choosing the same girlfriend who's always abusive towards him? Or what makes a person keep choosing a guy who's like her father and who ignores her all the time? These kind of adult patterns are rooted in childhood experiences. So invariably, that's where the therapy needs to go. Now, people vary. You just can't walk into a room and start crying about, you know, what your father did to you when you're 10 years old. So a lot of therapy, of course, takes place discussing here and now issues. You know, your, one's career, what's going on in the marriage, the things you fight about. But ultimately, things do wind up going back to one's early history, and that usually involves our family. I was also wondering, do you often get people who have issues they want to deal with but claim that they had a perfect upbringing or they had a great childhood 
and are surprised by the fact that there was an issue when they were younger? That's a great question. Yes, that happens a lot. You know, particularly, you know, another interesting fact, at least I think it's interesting, about the Primal Institute is 50% of our patients are from all over Europe, and the other 50% are from all over the United States. In other words, we're not a neighborhood clinic that somebody who's living in Westwood or, or, or Santa Monica just happens to drop into. People hear about us, as I say, through this, this many books and all sorts of literature, and people come to us from many different cultures. So, for instance, and this is perhaps an unfair generalization, in Japan, for instance, it's a very big part of the culture. You do not criticize your parents. So people from varying countries and various cultures, they don't have quite such a casual attitude about criticizing family as we Americans do. You know, it's, it's not a big deal, you know, if you're having a beer with your friend to say, oh, my mother's driving me crazy. But in a lot of cultures, people don't say things like that. So in answer to your question, yes, a lot of times people, they are completely perplexed as to what their current adult problem may have to do with their childhood. And they're very surprised when after several weeks or several months of therapy, they can trace it back to things that they thought were not issues in, in their idyllic families. Is it often that they're trying to cope or creating defense mechanisms for things that happened when they were younger? Are you guys trying to crack through that kind of? Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, people are wonderfully creative when it comes to defenses. In fact, the more painful a person's childhood, the more robust their defenses will be. For instance, someone who's had a father who always beat the hell out of him. You know, dad came home every night at six o'clock and he had a few beers. And if I looked at him funny, man, he took his strap off and he gave me a couple of whacks. If you speak to someone like that, nine out of 10 times they will say, but you know, that was good that my father did that ah. because he taught me discipline and he taught me to really uh, pay attention and he taught me respect. So the, the more painful one's childhood is, the more you come up with creative intellectual rationalizations for why it was good. I mean, not everybody. Of course, there are some people that had bad childhoods and are quite aware of the fact they had bad childhoods. But uh, let me just make another important point. Mm -hmm. Most of the people that come to us, uh, you know, had mixed childhoods. In other words, most of the people that come here, their parents were good, decent people, and their parents did you know, probably 110% to, to make a good life for, for their kids. But sometimes there's a, there's, a, there's a bit of a disparity between the parents' intentions and the child's needs and the child's experiences. You know, so dad might be working 14 hours a day to provide for the family, and that's good, and that's, and that's a real sacrifice and, and a measure of the father's character. But at the same time, the experience of the child is, where's my dad? My, I have a father who never pays attention to me, who never goes to my Little League games, you know? You know, I feel like you could, as a child, maybe have different needs than even your parents perceive, and it's not their fault if they don't recognize those. That's right. It happens all the time. Okay. You know, but uh, for the past 30-some-odd years, I've been watching people cry a lot about their childhood, and, I, and I've never seen anybody cry about wishing that uh, the family had a nicer car, or a bigger house, or went on better vacations. That's not the stuff that affects us as kids. We don't care about having a Lexus or whether or not Bad drives a Chevrolet. We want time with our parents. We want them to be interested in, in us. We want them to come to our ballet recitals 
in our in our football games. That's what we care about when we're kids. I think that's important an important message for everybody. So. Yeah, you know, that whole notion of, uh, I'm, I'm older than you, obviously, but, you know, the baby boom generation, they coined this phrase, quality time. Mm-hmm. You know, I spend quality time with my kid, and that's such BS. <laughs> you know, I understand if you're a woman and you want to have a career, I understand that you're entitled to a career. I understand if you're a man and you want to get ahead. But the reality is, quality time is quantity time. When you're a kid, you need attention from your parents, and you need a lot of attention. And those things don't matter to kids. Yeah. You know, so if you're not there, it doesn't make a difference if you spend two hours quality time. It's not enough. Do you ever have people who come in and you, you help them experience their past, and they kind of remember things that they didn't expect and that end up being extremely painful or that they've really managed to almost completely block from their conscious mind? Uh, pretty much uh, seven days a week, yes. Wow. That, that happens all the time. But uh, not so much. I mean, sometimes, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a common occurrence to, you know, one's memory in therapy gets better. The more you unblock uh, emotions, the more your memory improves. But, but, but it's not so much, it's better to think of it in terms of, it's not so much that you're going to be remembering things that you've, you know, long lost, forgotten. It's more that your memories take on new meanings. Like, you might remember seeing your dad in his favorite chair, reading the paper all the time. Now, in therapy, you might connect that memory with your need for him to pay attention to you. Before, it was just a memory of, there's dad in that stupid chair reading the stupid paper. But perhaps what is new is the emotion that's attached to the memory, which is, why doesn't he ever pay any attention to me? How come he's always in a bad mood reading his paper? If you could just walk me through... If I were to come into your office, you know, and sit down for, for a therapy session, what is the, the typical process that you go through? I mean, how do you how do you start with this? What are you know some of the questions that are asked? How do you get these people to get into that state of mind to remember these these memories from childhood? Well, that is a fantastic question. That's a, I think you've done your homework. That that's a really good question. One of the things that's radically different about this therapy has to do with time. Now, what is Barry talking about? Time. The typical therapy session right now in in the world, if you go to your neighborhood therapist, whether it be a psychiatrist or a social worker or or a psychiatrist, psychologist, doesn't matter, the typical therapy session now is 45 minutes. Now, I don't know about you, but by the time you get your parking validated and tell the therapist (laughs) what you've been doing since you saw him last, the time is up. Not to mention that therapy, conventional therapy, takes place. You're both sitting in a chair in a well-lit, expensively decorated office. So even if you got emotional, the atmosphere is not conducive to really letting go and being emotional. Now, we conduct therapy under very different conditions. When someone comes here for therapy, for the first month, they are the only patient that the therapist sees. So they will come in for open-ended sessions. Now, that is a revolution in the field of psychology. In other words, to come in to have a session and you're not sitting face-to-face in a well-lit, expensively decorated room, you're in, a, you're in a treatment room where the lights are low, you're lying comfortably on, on a couch or on some pillows on the floor, and you have as much time as you need to actually tell another human being about your life. That alone is the biggest 
a facilitator of bringing up these feelings. You don't have a therapist watching his, his own watch with a patient in the next room ready to come in. So you can take anybody. I, I would love to try this in a formal experiment someday. I think you could go to any shopping center in the United States, pick any 10 people at random, put them in a room with an interested person and have them talk to that person for two hours. That person will be very emotional in, in a matter of a half hour. So, you know, long-winded though I may be, what I'm trying to say is we have changed the, the environment in which therapy needs to take place because people cannot get down to those emotions that we've talked about in an atmosphere where they're feeling rushed. So it's very important to have therapy in an environment that allows emotions to actually come up. I wanted to ask, I found something interesting on, on uh, I think it was on Wikipedia about Janoff, I guess, the founder of this, criticized talking therapies because they dealt primarily with higher reasoning areas and they don't access this more central nervous system. And I guess what I got from that, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's just, it's if you are just talking to somebody, as the words come out, you're creating them in, their, in your mind where what you're really trying to get into is kind of subconscious or repressed ideas. Is that kind of where you go with it? Yes, you're, 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 in, you're right in the neighborhood. Yes, Dr. Janov has said that, and we have been saying it for 30 years. When you're just talking, particularly you know, when you're talking face-to-face to another adult, you are accessing the front part of your brain, the, the latest part of your brain in terms of evolution. The actual more primitive parts of our brain, the part that mediate emotion, the limbic system, is not really activated under those circumstances. But here's a better way to look at it. If you think of the lessons that you've learned in your life, you've learned them from experience, not some old person saying to you, you know, you really should take care of your health or you should really go to school. In other words, those things are cognitions. They're intellectual. They only go so far. But the, the great lessons that you've learned in your life, you've learned because you've experienced something about them, yes? Absolutely. And it's the same thing in therapy. So, yes, we talk to patients initially. Obviously, you have to talk. But the only thing that really resolves these issues is experiencing the emotions that were never experienced. So, in that sense, talk therapy, it's sort of, you know, I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but talk therapy is like a Band-Aid. But when you really need surgery, you have to really experience. So when you say experience these emotions, I mean, what state do you get your your patients into? Like um, as they're talking and they're you know bringing up memories from their childhood. Um, yeah. I mean, do you just tell them to to get into the emotion and, and feel you know the pain, the sadness, the happiness, or what it may be? I mean, how do you? I guess, how do you make it happen? It, it, it really, that's another good question. It's really more of what you don't do. You know, the typical therapist, there, there's two extremes of therapists. There's the, there's the pontificating sort of Freudian with a, with a goatee and a pipe who doesn't say anything. Your head could be on fire and you wouldn't say anything. And then there's the other type of therapist, the behavioral cognitive therapist that is constantly talking and telling you how to live your life. Both of those extremes don't work. For instance, the other day I was I was seeing an 18-year-old. Usually I see people that are a bit older than that, but occasionally if I if I if I, I run into a mature teenager like that, I will agree to treat them. And this guy was he was really upset. 
his main focus, you know, he didn't care about childhood issues. His main focus was he, his girlfriend, you know, of two years broke up with him, and he was distraught about it. So I basically asked them, you know, how they spent their time together when things were good and what kind of music they listened to and all that kind of stuff. And to make a long story short, I had him bring in some of the music that they used to listen to. And we put some of that on during the session. And in five minutes, he was crying and feeling, you know, all sorts of loss and missing her and all of those related emotions. So really, once you get somebody talking about the right thing, you just really have to stay out of their way and not interfere with the process. It's, you know, Mother Nature created this process, not, not us. You know, you've had the experience where you were listening to some music and immediately you're back. You remember that summer. You remember Absolutely. the sight, yep. smells, and who your friends were and who your girlfriend was. You know, all that stuff comes rushing back to you. This is a little different than what we've been talking about, but I, I found online an interesting study you did about human tears. Ah. I was hoping you could just tell us a little bit about it because that seemed really interesting to me. Oh, I'm glad you asked. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that we've always tried to do with, at the Primal Institute is to always try and relate what we're doing with what's going on in other areas in science. Because, I mean, one of the, one of the problems with traditionally with psychology, you know, before we talked about the id and the ego and the superego, but where are those things? Those are hypothetical intellectual constructs. You could open up a person's brain, you're not going to find an id or an ego or a superego or an edible complex. So early on, we wanted to find out and stay abreast of what was going on in neurology and brain science and all of those things. Now, one of the things we do here, you know, I mentioned earlier, that we try and help people regain the capacity to feel painful emotions. And one of the things that happens is that people cry a lot. That's one of the hallmarks of actually experiencing sadness and painful experiences in life. So many years ago, I had the idea. Why, you know, Darwin, you know, Charles Darwin asked this question, actually, long before I did, which is, why do people cry? How come we're the only species that cry? There must be, since Mother Nature or God doesn't do anything random, there must be a reason that we shed tears when we cry. So I got a whole bunch of scientists at the University of Minnesota, and to make a long story short, I collected tears in many different circumstances. Tears of people in therapy sessions, tears of people watching a sad movie, tears that people shed when they're peeling an onion. And we froze these tears and we sent them to other investigators who didn't know what they were, and we found a very interesting thing. The tears that were shed during a therapy session when somebody was reliving one of these painful moments had the highest concentration of a hormone called ACTH. And the two other tears, the, the tears exposed to an onion and the tears from a sad movie, had much, much, much lower concentrations. Now, what, what does this mean and why should anyone care? Well, ACTH is a stress hormone, and too much of it is a bad thing, and it's implicated in cancer in diabetes, in hypertension, in heart disease, basically in probably every disease, too much ACTH is at least a cofactor. So Mother Nature, in her wisdom, has found a way for us to get rid of some of these stress hormones, and one of the ways is by crying, which is a normal activity. Wow, I, I, you're making me want to figure out a way to go cry. <laughs> <laughs> now it gets better, listen to this. Do you know that in every culture across this planet, literally every culture, 
women live five to nine years longer than men across the board, every culture. <laughs> Is it? I mean, they do cry more. That's right. Well, there's a lot of reasons. Right. Now, and one of them is testosterone, which makes us do stupid things <laughs> <laughs> and take risks like yeah. drinking and smoking and yeah. driving without seatbelts. Oh, yeah. But to, the point of all this is that women, much more than men across all cultural boundaries, retain the ability to be more emotional throughout their lives. They don't grow up being told, hey, be a man, you know, you know, choke it up, what are, you, what, are you, what are you crying for? If a man cries, there's a big stigma. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's when we're little boys. And that has a health consequence. Going through life, decade after decade after decade, where you're always choking down your damn emotions, actually has a physiological, catastrophic consequence. And I'm sure that's not the only reason women live longer, right. but it's, I think, a very important factor. It makes sense. I just, it's crazy how you came to the conclusion. That's a incredible study i mean i guess i'm glad, I'm glad you asked yeah <laughs> me too <laughs> i guess lastly i kind of want to ask you know usually we're just asking questions about what we find or things that we find interesting but i wanted to get from you what do you find the most interesting about what you do and how you came across it what uh that's an interesting question because you know sometimes uh you know when I meet people like on an airplane or something and I tell them what I do a lot of times I lie because I don't want to I don't want to have the conversation I'll just say uh, oh I sell stereo yeah. but if I ever do say so, oh, I'm a psychologist and uh, a, a common follow up question is well isn't that depressing listening to people sadness and pain all day long and I don't know maybe it's me but my reaction is exactly the opposite. What I find tiresome and depressing is when you go to a typical party or something and people are telling you about, you know, what car they drive or how many miles they ran that day or, or what horoscope sign they are or some other baloney like that. <laughs> I find it refreshing. You know, I'm speaking to people every day of my life about the things that matter most to them, the, the reality of their lives and the problems that they have. Yeah, it's kind of heavy, but there's a lot of joy in it, too. I mean, not every session is, you know, uh, you know, relentless crying. There's a lot of joy, and I get to see people discover wonderful things about themselves and make uh, important changes in their lives. So I can't imagine, other than being Eric Clapton, I can't, I can't think of anything I'd rather do. Well, I guess I was going to have that be my last question, but this, kinda, this came up while you were saying that. It's kind of a, a grand uh, question here, but do you see a common thread in terms of people's realizations when they're in your therapy? I mean, I guess you alluded to it earlier, saying nobody remembers the car they drove or things like that. Is that kind of the, the, the theme throughout? Yeah, that, that, that's a very big theme throughout. But the, the thing that constantly strikes me is, you know, and, and, I, and I, as I say, I've, I've been lucky enough to deal with people from pretty much every country I can think of or pronounce, and all sorts of cultures, rich, poor, and everything in between. And the thing that is most gratifying is that once you scratch away whatever the facade is, people are invariably good. You know, they're, they're really basically good. A lot of people are hurt and have a lot of scar tissue, but they're basically good, and they want good for themselves, and they want good for the people that they love. I don't know. That's an empowering thing to see all the time. Yeah, I guess on that happy note, we should end it there. <laughs> Absolutely. We, we wanted to thank you. This is uh, extremely interesting. I'm sure our listeners will love this. 
Um, I just wanted to check uh, with you if you had any websites or books or anything that you recommend that you wanted to point people to or... Well, uh, that's a good question, too. Uh, I think, well, certainly our website, theprimalinstitute.com, uh, and uh, I think the best book, uh, a good place to start, would be really The Primal Scream, which was uh, published in 1970, and uh, and the music of John Lennon after the Beatles. Oh, I yeah. Think. I think we can all agree on that one. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, he was a genius before uh, he ever had anything to do with therapy, uh, so... We can't take credit for that, but I think we made a small contribution in helping him get in touch with his painful childhood. Yeah. And the genius that he was, he was able to turn that pain into creative, artistic uh, gold, you know? Well, then, the music listeners of the world, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Barry, well, uh, again, thanks so much. This was, this was awesome, and I uh, really appreciate you talking to us. Uh, Thank you. This was a pleasure for me. I wish you guys the, the best with your website and your, your podcast. And if there's ever anything I can do to help, uh, don't hesitate. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed the interview. And as a reminder, we do have a donation button on the website now. Remember, every dollar helps to help our podcast grow. As always, want to thank the outdoors for the music on the podcast. And you can find them on their website at www.theoutdoorsmusic.com and on Twitter at The Outdoors Band. Thanks again.